0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours. This is Real Crime Stories. I wasn't scheduled to do a podcast today, but I was a little bit upset when this ruling came down from the city council in regards to qualified immunity. And I just felt I have to go on air with two amazing guests that are going to talk about it. One of them is retired lieutenant and Pete Dr. Darren Portia, the one of the best talking heads on TV nationally, and we have retired NYT, NYPD police officer and attorney extraordinaire Joe Murray. Guys, welcome to the show. And you can see I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit riled up. So, Darren, uh, qualified immunity. What does it mean to the NYPD? Well, the
1: unfortunate thing when we speak to qualified immunity, we have some. Something- that basically allows officers to be, we use the term indemnified, and indemnification is merely the city or the corporation council attorneys um, within the city's wheelhouse will provide a legal defense for the officer providing he or she is acting within the purview of the official capacity. When you look at the basis of police work, oftentimes it can get ugly. Taking people into custody and citizens suing police is the natural order of affairs in a city like New York. New York is no different than any other city in the country. People sue police officers based on their perception of a frivolous arrest or them possibly looking to escape a criminal prosecution with the expectation of if they enter a a, a legal... um, against an officer, then the criminal prosecution will will go awry. That's not the case. But now you have officers that are basically putting their pensions and their lives on the line, and they're not going to be protected under qualified immunity. This represents a clear problem, a dysfunction in government for the city of New York. Something needs to be done, and something that needs to be done now. That's why we have the great Joe Murray as my wingman (laughs) in this particular uh, podcast interview, and he can give you a more quintessential overview of how it works and why you need to hire Joe Murray. Uh, I I didn't know we had
0: Walt, I didn't know we had Walt Frazier on this show, you know, with those (laughs) words, but what I like it, Darren, you're the best. Joe, I wanted to say, look, all us being police officers, we know that we were indemnified under section 50k. Of the general municipal law, which said that as long as your actions were in the scope of your employment and not reckless, that the city would indemnify you. In essence, if you were sued, they would pay the damages uh, in regards to the lawsuit. Can you uh, extrapolate upon that, Joe?
2: Yes, yeah, exactly. Extrapolate. Right. What are these big words? What are you, Wap <laughs> Fraser? <or something? laughs>
0: <laughs> extrapolate. You to have to cut his mic.
2: You know, Uh, And Darren, because he hit right on it, you know, police officers rely upon the fact that they can do their job, make difficult decisions and be backed up for it. And what what qualified immunity does, it's immunity from being sued. It's not even a defense like justification is a defense. So if I use excessive force and I get charged with it, I have a defense that I could raise at trial that I was justified in the use of force. So qualified immunity is not so much a defense, it's actual immunity for being sued. You don't even have to go to trial. You raise it right from the beginning to eliminate the lawsuit. So it's a great tool for law enforcement. And the purpose of it is to protect cops, to protect officers from You know they're in difficult discretionary acts like use of force. What type of force am I going to use? Am I going to use my nightstick, the mace, a taser? It's discretionary, so we can't hold them liable for using a discretionary act to perform a task. Uh, The the way it runs afoul is if there's a clear legal right, a a clear law that states you cannot shoot someone who's unarmed and poses no threat, you know, whatever the clear legal right pursuant to case law. But it has to be known to the officer or reasonably should have been known to the officer, whether through training or personnel orders. So unless it's a clear uh, rule of law that the officer violated, any discretionary act, you can't sue them. And again, that's a good policy because we have cops in dangerous situations that have to make split second decisions. And do you really want them worrying? Am I gonna be sued? Am I gonna be covered Uh, if I do this or not? It's dangerous. And that removal of qualified immunity takes away a great tool that police officers had to allow them to do their job properly and safely. Hey, Bill, I just want to say one thing in connection
1: with what Joe Murray said. Doesn't Joe look like a clean, lean, uh, 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 amazing spokesperson
0: for the department? You know, he does. He almost looks like the guy. You know what? He reminds me.
1: He reminds me of a sexy Kenny Rogers. And I'm speaking to you as a straight man, okay? So I'm going to be like, hey, you know, none of this other stuff. But he looks like a younger version of Kenny Rogers, you know? <laughs> but when you listen to him as an orator, he really provides some great points. Now, let me, from the white Walt Frazier's perspective, let me hear what you have to say now, Bill.
0: No, what I, what I want to ask, I want to ask you guys questions. How is this going to affect proactive policing, Darren? How is that going to affect it? It is going to cause
1: officers to implode. Those go-getters, those proactive officers that are going out there for the sake of protecting or defending the city are going to regress and just let shit happen. And they're not going to go over and beyond to do what they can to protect the citizens of New York because the fear of not having the ability to be covered under the indemnification clause would, would 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 preempt officers to not doing anything. And it's a problem because, I mean, I put myself in an officer's shoes. If I don't have indemnification and I go out here and I'm there's a possibility that I can be sued and pay 10% of my, my earnings for the rest of my salary, for, for the rest of my life, based on the city's unwillingness to protect me under the afforded protections of the Qualified Immunity Clause, I'm not going to go and do those things. I'm going to do the bare minimum, and you're going to have a lot of minimalists within the department, and that's what's going to completely populate the ranks of the NYPD as a result.
0: You know, Darren, uh, go ahead,
2: Bill, because I think we're going a little off on this. The qualified immunity prevents the lawsuit from going forward. It doesn't in and of itself prevent indemnification. However, that said, you know where the city's going with this. They're going to repeal 50K or modify it, not allowing indemnification. And we've already heard that where they're going to require police officers themselves to uh, attain their own insurance insurance to pay their own damages. So we are going there. But this removal of qualified immunity doesn't do it yet. It just says the lawsuit can go forward. And now you have to assert your affirmative defenses. And if you lose, the city will pay as long as you're found to be acting within the scope of your employment. If you use excessive force or if you conduct a search, again, I also want to just clarify, it's a limited withdrawal of, of uh, qualified immunity. It only applies to uses of force, uh, Fourth Amendment, search and seizure. So if you're searching uh, and using force, uh, and it also has a failure to intercede. So if you fail to intercede, you could be sued. But there are so many other contexts that you can be uh, uh, you can still use qualified immunity, you know, resource allocation, you know, other discretionary acts that the department engages in would be protected by qualified immunity. This is only search and seizure, um, Fourth Amendment uh, violations. So you know
0: recently I had um, Walter Wazalewski on the show who is a hero police officer who runs the um, Medal of Valor site on Facebook. And he told me that in the first two and a half months of the year, the NYPD took 813 guns off the streets of this city. Why? Why are these guys putting themselves at risk doing that when they have this type of reform that is not have that doesn't have their back? Why, Darren? This is a clear example of people are doing this for the love of police work. You have
1: certain people that will sign up and enlist no matter how much you pay them. To do what they believe is right in society and that's what you see like we've experienced a meteoric rise in gun arrests as more so specific during the time of a pandemic which is outrageous but the city is not affording the officers the resources. The anti-crime units have been removed. When I say the anti-crime units, the clothes officers are no longer in existence to take these guns off the street. So you now have uniformed officers on patrol that are getting it done. Now, we still have plainclothes units within the department, but usually, um, generally speaking, the stars of the precinct were you anti crime officers and that's since been flipped to all uniform. So it begs the question of why are these guys doing this and it's becoming more and more of a thankless job and now as Joe mentioned and as you mentioned in connection with the removal of qualified immunity it puts you in a somewhat of a precarious position whereas you're putting your pension and your income on the line and it goes back to what I mentioned this is what guys do because they believe that this is in their dna and it's the o- it's only the right thing to do but at the same token i genuinely believe that there's going to be a shift in the pendulum and you're going to have less officers that are going to be proactive and you're going to have more officers that will be reactive and the denigration of the quality of life in the city of New York will exist. And this is basically predicated on failed policies by the de Blasio administration and the city council that's folded like chairs, putting the eight and a half million citizens in the city of New York in harm's way.
0: Well said, Darren. MC's audio, one of our uh, people in the live chat said, Corey Johnson described it as police no longer being shielded from breaking the law. Could you respond to that joke?
2: Yeah, like I said, it's not that you're being shielded from breaking the law. Cops can be prosecuted for any illegal acts they take. Uh, like I said, <clears throat> in, a, in a context of excessive force, if you assault someone, you have, uh, the, the prosecutors have the right to effect arrests uh, and prosecute. Uh, the police can ar- effect arrests. They can and they are, and we're seeing that happen, particularly with this diaphragm law you know, where now just the compression of someone's chest cavity is enough to uh, cause an arrest. And there are cases in Queens where that's being prosecuted. So Corey Johnson is way off the boat on that. He, he's he's way off the mark. It has nothing to do with criminal liability. Police officers are always held accountable. They are, are the numbers, I wish I had them to, to respond, there are a lot of police officers that are subject to arrest. I represent some, uh, so I'm familiar with that. Qualified immunity does not take that away. Qualified immunity is a simple civil remedy that allows in a discre- – it's, it's actually like a good faith law. It's a discretionary act. If you're involved in a discretionary act where you have choices to make and uses of force are traditionally that's the type you make – then you, you are immune from being sued because you have to second guess that officer who does have a right to choose a nightstick, physical force, mace. You Unless there is a clear law saying you cannot use mace in a confined area and you use it, then you don't get qualified immunity. You're subject to that lawsuit. So Corey Johnson is way off. He should stick to his nonsense going on in the city council. Darren, I
0: have a very well said, Joe. Darren, I have a question for you and just a what if you're the you're the CEO of the 75 precinct. This this order just came down today or this result of the city council passing this law. How do you talk to your troops? How do you convince them to keep going out there and protect a very dangerous neighborhood? Keep getting me guns, guys. Keep making robbery arrests, guys. Keep making G.L.A. arrests. Protect the citizens of this city. How, how are you going to do that, Darren?
1: It's a slippery slope. When we look at, there's a difference between supervision and leadership. As a supervisor, you basically, you focus on the iteration that's been established, such as rules and regulations, officers need to do A, B, and C. But it is a leader, now it's the onus is upon you to have your members believe in you and do things for the sake of making you happy with what they're doing or their achievements so to speak. So people follow you because they believe you and that's where leadership comes into play. From a leadership perspective as a precinct commander, it it, it presents a very difficult narrative or challenge for that police leader or police executive to instill or impose the will in the officers that are standing roll call to go out and continue to protect and defend the citizens in these vulnerable and disenfranchised communities, such as East New York, as you mentioned, in the 7-5 precinct. I don't know how you can do it. This is something that's relatively new. We're in a deciduous state in connection with how this is going to be handled. But I just say this, you know, um... You have to do what works best for you as an officer and your family. If it means you may want to take a step back and regress and await additional resources or even bringing a supervisor. And I know it sucks. And, Bill, you can attest to this. Nothing worse than having a cop that every time they turn out, as soon as they answer the radio, the first thing they do is just say, could you have the sergeant could you have the sergeant respond here? That right. to me, it, in the past, I looked at that as someone that wasn't a police officer. There are other things that you can do. You can watch windows, you can do construction, you can become an open heart <laughs> surgeon, but you're not you're not um, designated to be a police officer. But unfortunately, based on the, the, the new environment that's been introduced, officers are going to reach out to supervisors more so every day before they make these decisions because they want to ensure that they're not caught in a po- in, in a point of contention of the making a, an arrest or using force against someone um and they become subjected to the contention related to the qualified immunity it's a problem it's a real issue that the mayor is really going to have to get behind and make an assessment as to what's going to work better for the citizens of New York. And the problem that I see with Mayor de Blasio is oftentimes he's really quick to implement things such as 3K or some other bullshit But he's never focused on the denigration of the quality of life for New Yorkers. We see the constant recession of the quality of life in New York, such as a million bikes that are on the street, people taking a dump in the middle of the sidewalk, motorbikes all over the place with operators without helmets an overall level of impunity for criminal behavior, robberies, and things to that effect. A subway system that has become a homeless encampment. He's failed to take the necessary action so as a result, the quality of life has been denigrated. And now we have police officers who are heroes that are placed in somewhat of a precarious position with the removal of qualified immunity, which begs the question of why should they go out and do what's right for the community? Because you may argue that this is what they were hired to do. No. When that officer first took that oath, they were, they were hired under
0: the umbrella of qualified immunity, which has since been lost. You know, I wonder, because this all of this stuff is on the heels of the DOI, the Department of Investigation report on the summer riots, followed up by... The state attorney general's report, both of them were hit jobs on the NYPD, followed up by the diaphragm law, followed up by getting and these are not in uh, chronological order with getting rid of anti-crime and now followed up with getting rid of qualified immunity. When do the hits stop? When does it stop?
2: Bill, you hit, it, you hit it on the head, especially when we spoke last time. You left out one important thing, that, that amazing word that we've been hearing all the time, decarceration. This is all part of the plan. I, I referred to it last time. We were talking about the closing of Rikers Island. I sat in on that subcommittee, uh, and some of the people involved in this new legislation were involved in that uh, vote. The subcommittee voted to send it to the full City Council, but they were talking about this is the first step in our ultimate goal to close all jails and all prisons because people don't belong in cages. Now, they're, they're taking a wide approach to that. They're doing it from the jail perspective, and now they're doing it from the police interaction perspective where they're trying to deter police officers from making arrests They're trying to deter prosecutors from prosecuting, and we see that. Like in Queens, I think they just dismissed about 700 sex uh, worker uh, cases where they dismissed it. They're really going out of their way to stop crime and punishment. They want it to be treated like social workers, like they're talking about now having social workers respond the EDP jobs, and now taking away traffic accidents and giving it to the Department of Traffic, forgetting about the criminal activity that goes with traffic accidents, DWYs, uh, 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 suspended licenses and forged licenses and and flinging the scene. Who's gonna respond to that stuff? So remember what this is all about. It's about the left's agenda of decarceration. Make it as hard as possible. And just to respond, I think Darren did a great job about your question about the CO of the 75. I have a gun case that I responded to in the 77. I went there. I got the call right away. I spoke with the officer. He recovered the gun from inside the car. The gun unit was there. They wanted to interview my guy and were upset to see me there. However, we were just talking about What's the impact then on the officers? The officer's a great guy. I don't want to name him. And I said to him, with this diaphragm law, are you guys being careful? Because it's outrageous what, you know, you could be subjected to. And he goes, listen, if your guy would have ran, I wouldn't have chased him. Point blank. That's what the cops are telling me, that because of this stuff, my guy surrendered right away, so it was no issue. But he says, if your guy ran, you know, you know, good luck. So it's, it's very scary. But I want to give you the other side now because I represent a lot of defendants. Here we have a guy who lives in one of the most violent areas of the city. And from his perspective, the police have disbanded anti-crime. Stop and frisk doesn't happen anymore. You have a diaphragm law that makes cops afraid to interact. Shootings and, and uh, homicides are up. Uh, going through the roof, what are the local civilians supposed to do when they're not getting police response? They're not getting police to interact, uh, interdict on their behalf. So there's a social contract that we live by. We don't engage in self-help. We allow the police to handle crime and punishment. But when they're unable to do it, And that's the goal of the city council and this mayor. They don't want police to be able to do their job because they don't want people arrested and convicted. When you have broke that social contract, what does the citizen living in a crime riddled neighborhood do? They arm themselves. So this is an interesting case that I'm going to take up uh, and challenge it under the Second Amendment. When 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 as. The facts that we laid out, he has no choice because people in that community know, unless I see a blue and white, there are no cops on the block because there's no plainclothes cops, and they're free to engage in their criminal activity. It's outrageous. It's going to lead to more and more loss of life unless we do something.
0: Darren, I know that you have a hard out at 6 o'clock. It's 5.53. I want to have your comments on what Joe was just talking about.
1: Joe was absolutely wrong
0: about everything. No, not Joe. As
1: always, as always, Joe is right, and it sucks being on with Joe because he's such a wealth of information. Because he kind of he's a hybrid. He was a practitioner in law enforcement as a police officer, but now he is a practicing attorney that is licensed in the city in
2: the state of New York. So he kinda sees it a violent felon myself. So I I have all perspectives of this uh, (laughs) criminal justice. he knocked out another
1: officer. he punched out another cop and he didn't like the discipline process and that's why he went to law school and became a barrister or an attorney, so to speak. This is a true story, this is no bullshit. Joe knocked out a guy I know the came story. Down on him and they said, look, look, this is your ass. And then Joe said, he didn't like the representation, so he says, oh shit, let me see if I can get this thing done on my own. He goes yep. to Joe, school. you see
0: why Darren likes to come on this show more than CNN because he can. Do I the yeah. word. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so, so he goes to night school and gets his law degree and then steps out there and, and functions in the arena that he knows best as a criminal justice practitioner, mm-hmm. as a police officer. You know, that being said, he mentioned he hit on some very significant pieces. One of the things was the social contract, more specific government is afforded the ability to, well, I should say we as citizens, we turn over certain rights to government and those rights that we turn over to government are, we allow government to protect us and by removing the right of allowing government to take take people into custody, meaning police. So when you take someone into custody, they no longer have the right to roam free in a free society. That being said, Police are that first line of defense in connection with the social contract. Police protect, serve and protect these communities. Police are primarily public servants. I wanna say 90% of what you do as a cop is service related. However, it's that 10% that's enforcement-based that we all see. But that 10% is very significant in maintaining the peace in the society that we live in because if we don't have police in our society, we'll have something that's reflective of the movie The Purge. When you have no enforcement, no order, then that's when complete anarchy takes over the society and no one is able to advance. It's a very tough narrative, but it's I don't want to say that we're going to a place where we will have no police... But when you look at the defund police movement, you had a lot of Democrats that supported that. And the result of that was they lost a lot of the down-ballot elections in the Democratic Party because there were people that are disenfranchised in many of these communities, more so specific to the minority communities, that are under siege with gun violence, and they're looking for a reprieve by police to afford them the necessary protections. You have the disconnected city council and mayor, that perceive everyone that lives in these communities as cop haters have an anti-cop sentiment and not wanting police. But in actuality, these people want more police in their communities to protect them because they're under siege and there's no one that's capable of providing or affording them that protection. Mayor de Blasio had made mention to something that he refers to as violence, um, the these uh violence preventers and things to that effect violence disruptors those are those are not paid employees nor are they trained individuals capable of dis- diffusing violent conflicts we need an officer or a person that's highly trained armed and has the lawful right Bestowed upon them based on the constitution to either take a person into custody or do what's necessary in terms of avoiding that person and the services such as social service, taking an emotionally disturbed person to a hospital, as opposed to leaving them on the street. Common citizens are not going to have the ability to do this, nor should they have that ability. I'm wholeheartedly in favor of giving additional resource, um, giving additional duties to people outside of the police department. For one, I don't think cops should be writing parking tickets. I think this is somebody else that you can use for writing parking tickets. There are a lot of civil enforcement related issues that I don't think cops should deal with. I think that the sheriff should deal with a lot of the um, going into these these nightclubs and, and putting forth like these march orders and things to that effect and closing down those businesses. I think the sheriff is better suited for that. I think we need to free up the officers to do much more for these communities that are under siege. No one understands that. We just see it seems as if we pile more on the officer, and then it's so crazy they're looking to remove an officer's response to a motor vehicle accident. And how many times over do you see cases where the reason for a motor vehicle accident evolved around somebody that was intoxicated? It just doesn't make sense to me. The, the, um, the implementation of social workers, social workers are not armed. So when you, uh, when you engage a violent, emotionally disturbed person that's in possession of a weapon, it's a split-second decision that you make as a police officer. And for you to await a social worker to step into that environment, is, it leads to an appetite for destruction. So, you know, that being said, I'm going to go ahead. I have to segue out, and I'm going to let the amazing Joe Murray, <laughs> a.k.a kenny rogers in his younger years take over <laughs> and impart his wealth of knowledge as an attorney at law and a prior nypd officer as the what works best for our society because we're under siege and this is not just happening in new york it's happening in los angeles it's happening in portland it's happening in seattle it's happening in all of the major cities that are um operated by democrats we see it happen in chicago the same thing we need to make a change if not we're going to go back to the 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 years of the 19 the bad old days of the 1970s where we have graffiti fires shootings and gang violence all over the place that plague their communities or plague these communities denigrate the quality of life subsequently causing a tremendous recession in the price of real estate
0: Darren, thank you so much for being on the show. I know you have a hard out at six. You never turn me down. Thank you so much, retired lieutenant and Dr. Darren Porcher. Thanks,
1: Joe.
2: Good seeing you, you, brother. Once
0: again, let me tell you,
1: you are the man. Police off the cuff is tremendous. I don't know if they know. You were like number five in all police podcasts. Correct, what number, correct. Four? Four, number four, number four, yeah, yeah. So, you're the fucking man, you know. I'm honored to be on here. I guess this is not the run of the mo, this is not the run of the mill, bullshit hot dog stand conversation. But that being said, I'm out, guys. Take it easy and stay Thanks, safe.
0: Thanks, Darren. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks. Darren. Thank you. He's amazing, great. right, Joe? Isn't that yeah, great? I, love him. I mean, he's like a non stop and he comes up with those big words one after Jesus. another and he ties them together. It's uh. He's a great Dr. man, you know. Dr. Porcher. Thank God know. we got Dr. Porcher on our side, you know?
2: Yes, yes. But, you you know, know Joe, the- I want uh, I, I wanted to go ahead. Go ahead, Joe. I just want to follow up with something he said about, you know, who's the real victims of all this nonsense that the the mayor with his security, armed security team, and Corey Johnson with his armed security team, who are the real victims of these policies? The black and Hispanic people of these poor crime-ridden communities that are gonna have to deal with this. Do you think, Darren hit it on the head. Remember John John Cummings, he ran against AOC, retired police officer, he was asked about this and he gave a brilliant response. He says, I've been going to community civic meetings both in the police department and in my private capacity. I have never heard anyone at these meetings say, hey, way too many cops, we don't need them. Let's get rid of them. They all want more police. They all want more protection. They want enforcement. They want the police to do their public service in the community. Nobody's asking for less police except these woke politicians that are furthering this ridiculous decarceration plan. And here it is. We're seeing it in full color every step of the way. It's all for that ultimate purpose of chaos in the streets. You know, Joe, uh, a thing that they're, they're, they're
0: uh, hanging their hat on a lot and I find it uh, pretty disturbing is uh, the whole concept of implicit bias, you know, and that they're pitting the races against each other. And in fact, uh, that's their reason for doing a lot of this stuff, you know, and I've never met a cop that wouldn't save the life of a black person or a Hispanic person or a white person or an Asian person. But it's dangerous for the politicians to be pushing and selling this implicit bias theory.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the provisions in this new city council uh, plan is about traffic enforcement. They want to now break it down by race, ethnicity, age, uh, and precinct. Because again, to your point, they want to focus and try to identify how police are policing minority communities more than they are white communities? Again, uh, it goes back to the very basic principle: where is the crime? It's, it's, and people may not like to hear it, but that's where the crime is. The crime is in the three two, the two eight. You know, the the crime is in the seven five, the seven seven. It's not the one eleven, not the one o five. It's not the nineteenth precinct so much. That's where the focus of enforcement is going to happen. You're going to have more cops who are out there aggressively pursuing violent crime. So they're interacting with people more on the streets. I'm sorry, it's going to happen. But, you know, that's the pros and cons of having more police in your neighborhood to protect you.
0: 100%. I just want to shout out to some of our people in the live chat. Black Rose 11, B. Higgs Glenda Pospisil, Ania Benania-Strell, Black Rose, and, of course, the great, amazing Harlem Raiders, Peter Pranzo, Lute- retired Lieutenant Peter Pranzo. MC's Audio, very talented podcaster and broadcaster, Dawn Marie, Sandra Rivera. Did you run your nine miles today, Sandra? Uh, Dawn Marie again, Uh I think I almost got everybody. Uh, Michael Abbott, great to see you here. Scotty Wagner, boxing MMA. Glenda Pospisil again. Elise D. Um, Melody Mcatee. I'm getting through everyone, I think. Ryan, investigative group. Bill Ryan. Sandra from the UK. I mean, we got people here from the UK. I'm going to sing a couple of Beatles songs. I think you know. <laughs> uh, Helena Dashwood, Black Rose Eleven. Um, I think I got I pretty much got everyone. Let me see. Yes, I. Oh, Hoppy Hoppy! I love that name. That's so great, Hoppy Hoppy. I'm Hoppy Hoppy today because I got Joe Murray on my show, the great yes. Os, uh, Sergeant Oscar Ferofino, retired, of course. And uh, let's get back, Joe, to the concept of yeah. um, decarceration, which I don't think that most people understand or can actually believe that that's a progressive goal to empty the prisons, to empty the jails, and to do something that's known as community corrections. And if folks out there listening don't know what community corrections is, that's the theory that criminals can be supervised in their own community because progressives feel that keeping them away from their families and keeping them out of the community, they use that word community too much, in my opinion, is going to hurt them and hurt the community. But guess what? They're criminals. They're not gonna be productive in the community. A lot of members of their community don't want them in their community because they are destructive individuals.
2: Yeah, you're 100% right. And and that goes to also, uh, again, I just, I'm not positive of the numbers, but essentially there is that theory that 20% of the population is committing 80% of the crime. These are people that we need to remove from society not forever, but you know, to try to rehabilitate them. They don't believe in jails and prisons. These decarceration people, again, they want it to be treatment-based. There's no such thing. They actually said it in that hearing. There's no such thing as criminals. They're people. They need to be held and hugged and given cookies and hot cocoa. And you know, that's how we're gonna correct what they're doing. They're shooting and killing and raping people. If we do that and treat them this way, it'll it'll bring them to a more happy society. They're out of their minds. It's crazy. I mean, perhaps they, they should do a little ride along in some of these precincts, the 75 and the 77, 79. Let them see the people that are out there and the harm that they're causing. You know, okay, people should not be thrown away the key and they should, I, I, I agree. You should work with people and try to rehabilitate them. That's the purpose. The purpose of government is to protect society. We have to remove them from society, rehabilitate them in some way, and bring them back. That's, that's the goal. Can we do that better? Yes. Should we do it better? Yes. Not eliminating altogether jails and prisons. And that's what's happening here. A lot of people don't realize it yet. The closing of Rikers Island that has the capacity uh, in in the heyday when carrick was there it was over 20,000 uh, inmates right now they want to close it and they want to build these limited capacity facilities in the neighborhood jails in each precinct now nobody want in each borough nobody wants them in their neighborhood of course but they're going to build them on a on a limited scale because when the crime rises and they have nowhere else to put them, they're going to have to release them. That's the goal of these people. The decarceration uh, movement is, is really in high gear in New York City. Well, Joe, you know, the
0: United States as a country was criticized by uh, countries throughout the world for having the highest incarceration rate of any uh, country in, in the world. And, yes, maybe I think we should probably address that. Should people be in prison for for drugs? Maybe they should get treatment. You know, maybe that's one area where we could release uh, nonviolent uh, inmates. However, you and I both know, as soon as you say the word drugs, there's no such thing as there not being violence connected with drugs. There's yes. all kinds of violence connected with drugs,
2: right? Okay. So when <laughs> it, drugs is a Your nonviolent, our was, was sentencing rules uh We have violent felony offender statuses that as a defense attorney, we try to avoid for our clients at all costs. And regardless of whatever they're charged with, our goal is always to shift it to a nonviolent offense if we're plea bargaining or reduce the, the charge. But the charge that you're ultimately convicted of is very rarely, unless it's a murder, it's very rarely the top count of what you're accused of. So when someone goes away for a, a 220, uh, whatever, 16, when they go away for a drug offense and it's a nonviolent, a lot of times that's due to plea bargaining and negotiating an otherwise violent crime that was reduced. So, yes, the, the drug offenders, it is an illness, it is a disease that it has to be attacked aggressively. I, I see it in people that are dear to me that that suffer and have family members who have died from overdoses. I mean, it's it's so hurtful on the whole family, the community. We need to attack that. And, and the way we're, we're looking at legalizing you know, certain drugs, I think it's insane. But in any event, I agree with you on that respect. Nonviolent drug offenders who are addicts not drug dealers. And I'll tell you, I do it with my clients who are drug dealers. We tell them that he's only selling because he's an addict and we get treatment. These guys aren't addicts, but they get put in and classified as addicts. They do it. They're the only ones. You know, it's ironic. The drug dealers that do these programs are the only ones that actually really pass and succeed in these uh, diversion programs. Why? Because they're not addicts. And the DAs know that they're not addicts and that they're drug dealers, and they allow them into the programs because they need somebody to succeed. They need to show some rate of success, but the actual addicts that get re-arrested and re-offended, they don't get the help. So we need more reinforced treatment for people that are suffering a disease, and it is a disease. 100%. percent Black Rose 11 thank you
0: so much for the $2 super chat. It's great to see. Uh, Rachella Pranzo is here. I rarely see Peter Pranzo without Rachella. Rachella just showed up. Thank you, Rachella. Ron Chindel, good to see you. Hey, Ron Chindel was an DI on our job. Now he's a D, an inspector with the Port Authority. He knows how to play the system. Smart guy, though, right?
1: Ron Chindel.
0: <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, Joe, I wanted to say another thing. Like you brought up some of the things that we were talking about. Who can be decarcerated, and One of the bad things about bail reform is they pull the eyes over the general public by saying, oh, burglary, it's a nonviolent crime. Oh, really? The definition of burglary is knowingly and unlawfully enter or remain in a building with intent to commit a crime. How is that? So someone's going to go into your house to steal your property. What are you going to do if you see a burglar in your house, Joe?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to use force. I'm going to, you know, use whatever force I need to, to eliminate that threat. But, you know, there are instances where you're entering an unoccupied residence. Uh, so you can technically <clears throat> classify it as not. Yeah, but,
0: Joe, the burglar knows that if someone's home, he's going to use force to get away or to beat down the owner of that house. So I can't see how you could say that's a nonviolent crime. It's not. let are- on. Let me Let me just continue. Robbery second, aided by another. They list that in bail reform as a nonviolent crime. Robbery, right. as I remember, I made sergeant, uh, is the forcible removal of property,
2: right? Well, in this case, in that subdivision, the force is aided by another. That's the actual use of force. It's not so much that you punched him and tackled him and took his property, uh, but yeah, right, but you're oh. there enabling the guy who's going to use
0: force to have the confidence to do that robbery.
2: Yeah, it, it, you know I, I agree with you. And what they did is they have amended it and they included more provisions that are now subject to they call them qualifying offenses that are now subject to cash bail. However, the whole approach is that's a last resort. They have to use the least restrictive means that will enforce or, or uh, encourage the person to come back to court, to ensure that the person returns to court. <clears throat> so least restrictive means could meet a number of things. Joe, I have right. the picture of you up on
0: the screen. I'm trying to get you some business for your law firm. <laughs> There's a very handsome Joe Murray in his office. So uh, That's good, that was during <laughs> the,
2: uh, the campaign, that was good. Oh,
0: Joe also ran for Queens district attorney. So that was his uh, district attorney pose.
2: <laughs> That's me. Yeah. But I I, what I didn't like about the bail reform because I think we needed some reform as far as, you know, due process where w- when you're at an arraignment, it's really the prosecutor that has the advantage because the prosecutor has spoken to the cops in a large amount of cases. They've spoken to the victims. They've reviewed the evidence when they write up a case where a defense attorney, we're just getting called by the family, yoked out of bed, go run down the corner. We haven't been to the crime scene. We haven't looked at all the evidence. So we're at a disadvantage as to the case that we can bring to challenge the evidence. But um, in in cases that, you know, the prosecutor goes so heavy and, you know, they're saying to the judge, well, you know, this is uh, uh, a serious offense and there were weapons found and, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. I, I represented this woman who was charged. The police went into the, the 112 precinct, uh, did a search warrant and recovered 18 guns. They recovered 18 guns. They ch- only charged her with 10 and they charged her with first degree possession of firearm. Uh, they turn out to be all fake guns. They were toys. They were airsoft guns. They were starter pistols because the family themselves, the husband and wife, they're involved in producing rap videos, and they actually showed me, and I gave to the DA these videos, and they're in them. So, but at the arraignment, the, the prosecutor's telling the judge, oh, all these firearms, they present such a danger to try to get a higher bail. Well, wait, wait, thank- but
0: Joe, hold, let me stop you for one second. Part of of, of uh, a firearm being prosecuted is that it has to be tested by the ballistics unit and proven to be operable. And if it's not right. operable, it's not a felony.
2: Correct. And within days, we got all the ballistics back. None of them were capable of discharging a, uh, a projectile. So they were not declared firearms. And a lot of them were toys, and they were obvious toys. They had cartridge uh, places to put a... A CO2 cartridge in it. I mean, these cops knew they were not toys, yet they charged her with it. This is a woman who has no criminal record whatsoever. And, you know, she's a manager at a, at a place where she worked. She suffered tremendously. And it took over a year for the district attorney to reduce it to a misdemeanor. I don't know why they're reducing it to a misdemeanor. They're not charging her with an imitation firearm. It's just outrageous.
0: But, Joe, you know, there was just a story about people who have flown to New York City from other states and they had uh, gun permits like under H.R. 218 and they got arrested and prosecuted by the Queens District Attorney. Yeah.
2: And the district attorney was interviewed
0: that they're so anti-gun in New York City, they're going to charge a good citizen who has a gun permit in another state. How counterproductive is something like that?
2: It's really horrible the, the way they do that. But Queens gets hit the hardest because we have two airports. And a lot of them come through the airport. You know, people that are coming in. I had a guy that because he used a knapsack to travel, it actually had a round in it because he's from Georgia. And he routinely goes out and shoots. He didn't bring any guns, but he had a round. So the enforcement is so strict in New York City. Clearly, these people are not criminals they are otherwise licensees. I had a security guard who was you know protecting a celebrity who was arrested. he was in the military he had three jurisdictions, permits and three jurisdictions. he didn't possess the firearm it was in his luggage uh, still arrested and they dragged the case out. many of these cases they will require you to plead guilty to at least a misdemeanor. I mean I had one where the guy was uh, from South Carolina. They wanted to go to New York City for New Year's Eve. It was so exciting. So they jump in the car. There's four or five of them. He runs a stop sign in PSA 9 somewhere. A cop picks him up, and he takes him out of the car. He searches the car. He finds a gun. My guy jumps up. Oh, that's mine. When do you ever see that at a car stop? You never do. He's required to keep it in the glove compartment in Georgia, I think he was from. When you're driving with a firearm, you have to have it in the glove compartment. So he thought nothing of it. Oh, that's mine. And he jumped right up. Five people in a car. That's mine. So uh, we had we dragged this case out with the district attorney's office. And what are we going to do as a defense perspective if all they will go down is to a misdemeanor? If I go to trial, he could be convicted of a felony. It's a three and a half minimum. So it's unfair and it's horrible that they're doing this to people. They're making people plead guilty. Quite often it's to uh, a non-permanent charge, like a disorderly conduct that will be, you know, removed from your record. But a lot of times they make it, you know, for uh, misdemeanors. It's it's unfortunate. And it serves no purpose. These are law-abiding people that have guns in other states. Why should they be suffering here? And there was one even at Ground Zero. I don't know if you remember that. Ground Zero doesn't allow any firearms. And the person had a license and said, "Okay, I'll I'll check the firearm. And then they arrested her. So it was just like crazy.
0: Yeah, that's that's sort of counterproductive uh, to do that. Joe, I just want to get back to the one thing now. Police reform isn't just coming in New York city. It's, it's a national thing right now uh, for police reform because apparently the police have been doing everything wrong for years and uh, they have to pay the, pay the fee for the ills of society because all right. of society's ills can be blamed on the police. They all can be directly tr- or indirectly tracked back to the police. Yes, it's all the to- fault of the police. But in the state of New York, the reforms basically came down from from the bully governor, this guy we know as Cuomo, who's got his own problems right now. Yeah. Or less saying, you either adopt these reforms or you're not getting this money or that money from the state. I mean, that's not an unheard of political way to do things. It's a bully way to do things, which he's the number one bully probably in the state.
2: Absolutely. But it seems
0: like the city has gone even one step further than that in pushing these police reforms. And part B to this is that I would think more more times than not, the upper echelon of the police department, the chiefs, the police commissioner, they would push back, but they're not pushing back right now because they're more or less told, if you push back, you find another job, retire or resign. And I mean... These are people that are putting these reforms in have no police experience. Have I've never seen any of them out there. Have you? No, I haven't seen one, one, two, five in the uh, you know Lennox. I haven't seen them anywhere.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, they come out of the woodwork with these reforms, misinformed reforms like the diaphragm law, and they don't even ask anyone in law enforcement or criminal justice academia. Does this make sense? They're so arrogant that they don't even ask the experts. They just pass these laws. Cuomo is a bleeding heart. He releases cop killers. I don't yeah. want to just blame De Blasio because it goes right up to the the governor in the state house. He releases cop killers almost daily. Uh, Cuomo.
2: Yeah, that that whole system is the parole system. It's dreadfully. It, it absolutely needs reform. When you think about, you know, these these widows and orphans that have to go to the parole board now every two years to argue to keep their their father or mother's killer in prison. It's an unending ripping of the scab uh, of the harm that was caused. I mean, that they, they have to go out and solicit and get people to, hey, please help us, support us, send a letter to the parole board. It, it, to me, it's unconscionable. It's unconscionable that they should have to suffer that. I mean, there has to be some hard and fast rules about uh, punishment, particularly cop killers. I mean, of all people, police officers are here to protect and serve the public. If you're going to kill a police officer, imagine what that person is willing to do to a civilian. That's why we are so hard on that. And that used to be a death penalty offense in New York. Uh, unfortunately, no more, but at least it should be life in prison. That's it, you're done. Make them, just like they're trying to say the police officer now with the removal of qualified immunity, it'll prevent the officer from uh, you know, abusing someone's rights. Why doesn't that theory apply to criminals? Maybe if they knew there was a death penalty or a life imprisonment penalty, Maybe I won't shoot that cop. Maybe I won't, you know, commit that hor- horrendous, heinous crime. Why is that philosophy only applicable to cops? If we threaten them with severe outcome, they'll stop doing it. But that doesn't apply to criminals. So I I, I really am, you know, if, you, if you've actually been a part of, you know, some of these widows and orphans, what they go through, Uh, or anyone really who has to go to a parole board to argue why the killer of their father, sister, brother should remain in prison. It's really horrible. And, And for someone who's lost their life, they were removed from their family, you will never see them again. There needs to be a definite and determinate sentence that they will suffer regardless of parole. There should not be parole. And I, well, you I think know,
0: Joe, it seems like under this, um, the people that are in power right now, for some reason, uh, criminals have become the good guys and uh, the police have become the bad guys, and that's pretty hard to accept for people that devoted their life to law enforcement to accept that. Wait a minute, how did we become the bad guys? And <laughs> you have to think of it's because it's the selfishness of them just you know, pleading to their base and trying to get their base. And that, is that their base? You know, people that are in prison and the families of, or is it police officers who are
2: enforcing the law and and walking that straight and narrow path, you know? And and other law-abiding citizens that are fearful of what these policies are going to bring down to, to affect them and their families.
0: You know, I can't wait to see Once people start coming back to New York City, once this pandemic is over, when people feel safe enough to take off the mask and go about and go back to their apartments, all the people that fled to their Hamptons and their Montauk and their upstate and their Connecticut, their second homes. Yeah. Yeah. And when they go back into the city and they see what the city has become, are they going to? make noise? Or are they just going to say, oh, this is the way it was back in the 80s and
2: the 90s. We're just going to have to get used to it again. It's an interesting question. and I thought, you know, one of the indicators to me is what's going to happen in these elections. Um, I, I I know a number of the people who are running uh, that are great people that are, are you know, very civic minded, want to do good and want to help the community uh, and that are not tied to the You know party agendas they really just are sick and tired there's a woman vicky palladino who lives in whitestone uh i don't know how old she is exactly but she she's definitely a senior citizen she's running for office because she's so sick of what's happening to our police officers and what's happening in the crime in the community she's had enough and wants to make change i think there's a lot of people in her position like her who are coming forward Running for office for the first time, trying to get involved in city government to make these changes because they're horrified at what they see. And they're the ones that are going to suffer from it. The people, the good law abiding people of the community that are going to suffer from these new policies. So I, I, I kind of have hope. You know, De Blasio won with like 11% of the electorate. There was such low, the voter apathy was terrible. There was so many people that just didn't come out. I don't know. I I haven't endorsed anyone for mayor yet, but I I really want to see the Republican Party pull together or even some of these Democrats. I want to see somebody who really, truly cares and is not just following some political correct agenda, who really cares. And I had high hopes for Eric Adams being a former captain in the police department. He's seen crime. He was, I think, a lieutenant in the 8-8. I mean, that you know, that, that place was uh, a working house. He knows what should be done and what cops go through. I was hoping that he'd be the voice of reason. But lately, I see some of, you know, his policies and his rhetoric. He's just, you know, mirroring what's happening, uh, you know, in the city altogether with this I wonder where he is on this qualified immunity. I wonder where Eric Adams is on removing qualified immunity from working cops, trying, and he was a supervisor, a a captain who had to motivate. He was the guy you're talking about. How do I motivate my cops? What is his position? But I'm really hoping that somebody comes to the table who's not following this agenda and political correctness, who really cares about the city, and the quality of life, who we can get behind and, and hopefully make some change. But I think that's going to be important. Watch the voter turnout and watch who gets elected, up and down ballot.
0: Well, you know, Joe, we are on this show we've spoke about it before, that um, in regards to crime and the city getting out of control, the city has to have that Brian Watkins moment where uh, Brian Watkins was that uh, – tourist from Utah who was murdered in the subway station in Times Square. And that that just horrified the city. And it just more or less mobilized the city to elect a law and order type mayor. But I don't think we're there right now. And I think there's a lot of this progressiveness, which is not just a local thing. It's a national. It's a national problem. It's a national problem. Uh, Law and order thing, and uh, to reform the police, and I, I don't see I don't see someone who's not a progressive getting elected in this next election.
2: Well, I mean, it shows like yours and others. We got to get the word out. We got to bring these people on. We have to highlight, showcase them, and try to gather support for them. I'm not running for anything, but I have been actively supporting, uh, you know, several candidates, Marvin Jeffcoat over in. Uh, Uh, like the Woodside area, he's running for city council. Great guy, military guy, and uh, common sense guy. Just, you know, that's what we we crave more than anything. Common sense. Two plus two equals four. Removing qualified immunity, the diaphragm law, is going to lead to higher crime, less active police response. I mean, why can't they figure that out?
0: I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, Irma Rivera, the locator. Thank you so much for that four dollar super chat. Uh, Joe, we're at just about over an hour, and uh, I just want to just if I can plug a few things. If you guys like this show, please uh, subscribe to us on uh, YouTube. You know, become one of our subscribers. We're trying to build up our um, our population, I should say, on, on YouTube. And also, if you really love us. Join our uh, Patreon, which is um, people pay. We have three tiers on our Patreon. I'll put up the uh, – our three tiers are for seven – yeah, he's as the dipped in butter <laughs> mug. Our three tiers are uh, for $7 a month, uh, you're the bucket. For $9 a month, you get to polish my rack. And for $11 a month, the premier, you get to dip them in butter. And Joe's holding up that mug uh, proudly. And uh, we, we really uh, appreciate, um, appreciate your support on Police Off the Cup. This happens to be Real Crime Stories, an unscheduled show. And I want to thank um, Joe Murray so much. He was actually on the show yesterday, and I just call him out of nowhere, and he said, "Yeah, I'll come on the show. I mean, that's a real, uh, a real buddy, and I really appreciate you doing that. And, of course, we had the great retired lieutenant, uh, Dr. Darren Portia, who's always, always a hoot smart guy you know
2: yeah fun
0: guy so, Joe, again i want to thank you you have any uh parting words
2: no i i again i want to thank you bill because we need to have these conversations we got to get people involved and whether it's just chiming in and, and commenting here you gotta have your voice heard be part of the conversation if we electively stay out of the conversation we have no one to blame but ourselves so That's what I I commend you for, for engaging people, and I encourage people to follow up on that.
0: Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate it. And for all you guys, all you Police Off the Cuff fans that are out there and uh, joining us and watching all the time and supporting our show, I really appreciate you guys. You guys are what enables us to keep going. And, you know, this is sort of a passion, you know. It's a passion to – I mean, we have a lot of laughs doing this show, and, uh, you know, th- don't get me wrong. It's a labor of love. But without you guys watching it, we'd just be talking to ourselves, you know. So I want to uh, just thank all you guys for watching and, support- and supporting us. For Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, I'm Bill Cannon. And for Joe Murray and Dr. Darren Portia, thank you very much for listening. Good night, now.